This is Unfilter, episode 190 for May 30th, 2016. American Special Forces with YPG, and in this case, YPJ, that's an all-female unit of uh, Kurdish fighters, uh, with their insignia on instead. Pictures kind of give it away. The low-profile helmets, the unique camouflage, the uh, you know latest weaponry that doesn't go for export, uh, advanced and expensive communications gear. These are American troops, and they're armed to the teeth. Welcome to Unfilter, episode 190 of Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly show that's watching all of that news so you don't have to. It's just you and me this week on a special Monday report of the Unfilter show. Mr. Chase is out on an assignment, hobnobbing with the Mucky Mucks. We'll be back next week with a full show, and this week, there's a lot to cover. Coming up on this week's episode, we're going to get into the terrorism category in a new light. You just heard it there in the intro clip. We're wearing somebody else's flag. What is up with that? U.S. forces on the front lines in Syria with another insignia on their outfits. What the hell is that about? Well, it actually kind of makes some sense. We'll tell you about it in this week's episode of the show. Also coming up in the show, you heard about it at the tail end of last week. Uh, The State Department has a report out about Hillary Clinton's email use and... um, they had some things to say. You've probably been hearing a lot about it. We're going to cut through all of the noise and tell you the important bits, the stuff that might actually stick and the stuff that's not going to stick. Then in the overall 2016 election, we're going to have a, a moment for the third party candidate or at least uh, the libertarian candidate, I guess, and potentially the emergence of a new third party candidate that some say maybe Mitt Romney and all of that. We're going to have a little bit of a, a moment to get into some of that, give Gary Johnson some time on the show. And then towards the end we got some Trump stuff, and then we have an overtime category that is just packed full of stuff. So I thought, let's start with something that um, is one of my favorite topics, and that's uh, reminding ourselves of what kind of shit show the mainstream media is. This clip the does that. The newspaper has been left red-faced after admitting that to, for years one of its reporters had been relying on his imagination rather than actual events when it came to producing stories. I'm sorry, what's that? Yes, yeah, yeah, the Guardian. The Guardian. Their reporter was relying on his imagination. Their imagination. They went to events, covered those events that they never actually went to, had interviews with people that never existed. This is The Guardian. So that's why this show exists right here. You might be new. You might be saying, what is this show about? That's it right there. Uh, Also, we love one of the things on the show to do is follow the Snowden leaks, which there may be a lot more to follow very soon. Investigative journalist's website, The Intercept, has started publishing new files provided to it by NSA whistleblower Edward Snowden. The archive files extend from 2003 to the most recent secret files dating to 2012. We spoke exclusively with David Miranda. He's the guy who's uh, helping the classified documents reach the public and who was detained. Of course, you may recall this in the UK under those counter-terror laws while carrying files linked to the Snowden leaks a while back. He's also uh, Greenwald's significant other, or at least he was. Everybody's going to have a lot of surprises when you can find inside of those files. This is David Miranda. 
There's a lot of files that we didn't use for a reason, and we have a long, long conversations over the years. Should we do this or not? And now we wanted to do this because now I, we want the more traffic. We own to the public uh, to be able to see what is inside of those documents. Most of the documents are going to be online, and people and journalists are going to be able to access that and see all the information that we have acquired with Snowden in 2013. So I guess they were under some pressure not to publish these before. Every time that we wanted to publish something, um, the agencies, NSA, the GHQ, they always say this, if we publish that, it's going to be a threat to the national security and all those they always say to oh, us. Why do they have to be about bullshit, really? I mean, this is the news. Shouldn't that be news that that person said that word? So they always kind of threat us that we're going to be harming uh, the countries by doing that, but we haven't have one single case that that's happened in the past, and that's not going to happen now. We know how those governments say something to frighten you. So uh, that is kind of interesting, if it's true, if it plays out that there's something worth noting, that The Intercept releases a bunch of more Snowden docs, I'd be very fascinated to see what they have to say. And you know we'll break it down here on your own filter show. I want to start, though, in our terrorism category with the U.S. troops in Syria that were wearing the Kurdish insignias of the female Kurdish troops. Uh, and this has caused quite a bit of stir with some of our more important allies. Turkey has accused the U.S. of being two-faced for continuing to support the YPG, a Kurdish militia group fighting in Syria. Now, of course, I'm not super good on all of this stuff, but I believe the main problem that Turkey has with the YPG is they're connected to the PKK, if I'm understanding correctly. And uh, I believe I have that correct. And the PKK, or the PPK, is connected with a certain group of the Kurds that Turkey is has a lot of issues with. Uh, predominantly, they've come, they fundamentally disagree on governmental structures, and they are essentially, to Turkey, enemies. And so by the U.S. backing the YPG, they are, by extension, backing a group that is connected with enemies of Turkey. Now, the U.S. denies the link between the two groups, but Turkey does not. Turkey regards the YPG as the Syrian arm of the PKK. Oh, I said it right there, the PKK, right. To add further fuel to the fire, U.S. troops have been seen wearing YPG insignia. The fact of the matter is, you know, it's not authorized. Uh, so in this case, uh, uh, you know, they were directed to remove the patches. Uh, as far as any additional reprimands or anything like that, I'm, uh, I'm not aware. Uh, but the, the bottom line and the important thing is uh, that the situation's been corrected and that we have communicated to our allies uh, that, that such conduct uh, was inappropriate um, uh, and it was unauthorized. So it was unauthorized and it was inappropriate, and it, but it's okay because they're not doing it anymore. So they did something we didn't allow them to do, but it's okay. The Turkish Foreign Minister Mevlut Cavusoglu vented his country's anger. So this is the Foreign Minister of Turkey. They should also wear Daesh, al-Nusra and al-Qaeda insignia during their operations oh! in other regions of Syria. They can also wear the Boko Haram insignia when they go to Africa. <laughs> the YPG is the most powerful Kurdish Syrian militia backed by the US, currently engaged in fighting ISIL close to the group's de facto capital, Raqqa. 
Hmm. Now, this next clip, I thought, was just really excellent coverage. Just the way they did it, it caught my attention, and it's sort of like, look at this. We don't even have to tell you. This is obvious. This was RT's take on this story. U.S. Special Forces have been photographed for the first time in Syria, helping Kurdish fighters as they advance on Islamic State's de facto capital, Raqqa. The pictures were snapped by an agency reporter for AFP. If we cross over to the studio now, we can talk to RT's Murad Gazdev, who has more information on this story. Murad, what actually points to the U.S. Special Forces? He's actually kind of beaming. Look at him. He's gleeful about this. Well, what, uh, what doesn't? You know, you don't have to have a military background <laughs> to see these guys for who they are. You know, that sounds like a cop-out answer, especially if you're only listening on audio. But if you're watching the video version and you look at the pictures, I mean, it's like unquestionable. Uh, and they're there in Syria fighting uh, with the SDF, Syrian Democratic Forces, that Syrian Kurds and other groups, all of which are fighting ISIS. So they're helping them fight ISIS. And, uh, well, the... Pictures kind of give it away. The low-profile helmets, the unique camouflage, the uh, you know latest weaponry that doesn't go for export, uh, advanced and expensive communications gear. These are American troops, and they're armed to the teeth. Yet, uh, Washington maintains that they aren't there to fight. They are not on the forward line. Uh, they are providing advice and assistance. Except for they were photographed on the forward line. And again... Uh, I'm not going to get into details, but that mission has not changed. Their role has not changed. They are not uh, leading this fight. They are supporting those forces that are at the leading edge. Funnily enough, uh, YPG, SDF, sorry, officials on the ground are reportedly saying that these guys are everywhere. They're on the ground, they're in the air, they're on the front lines where the fighting uh, is taking place, fighting against uh, ISIS. So They're everywhere. They're everywhere. Dressed up as the YPG, or in this case, the YPJ. Think about that for a moment. Think about what that represents. So this fighting force, this one group, the YPJ, that's, or J, G, that's having the greatest success against ISIS and that's having the greatest success against Assad happens to be full of U.S. Special Forces. What are the coincidence of that, guys? Funnily enough, uh, YPG, SDF, sorry, officials on the ground are reportedly saying that these guys are everywhere. They're on the ground, they're in the air, they're on the front lines where the fighting uh, is taking place, fighting against uh, ISIS. So clearly, you know, if you listen to them, they're involved in the fight. But is this evidence proof enough? Well, uh... We've heard for a while, Obama promised there'd be no boots on the ground in, uh, in Syria. Well, now you have boots on the ground in Syria. Uh, funny thing is, though, uh, insignia. Often the insignia, American flags, are missing from their uniforms. And you have them, uh, American Special Forces, with YPG and, in this case, YPJ. That's an all-female unit of uh, Kurdish fighters. Now, what is that about? I mean, it's, uh, and it's not, they're not women, uh, special service members. They're men. They, these are these photographs, at least, are men. So why are they, you know, you think about what the, role, the, the roles of sexes that play over there in the Middle East and how much more significance they have over there than they do here. It would be weird to have that happen here in the States. That would be a weird thing if there was like a, a female only troop and the men walked around with their insignia. They'd be like, oh, what's up with that? But, you know, we'd, would it be a scandal? I don't know. But over there, I mean, that's got to be a totally different ballgame. There's got to be, I mean, did the, what, did, the, did the special forces get a one, did like, is somebody pulling a, a, uh, 
a fast one on the special forces? Is this a show of solidarity by the U.S. special forces? Is that what it is? Is it a statement they're making? Is it an accident? I mean, I just don't understand. In this case, YPJ, that's an all-female unit of uh, Kurdish fighters, uh, with their insignia on instead. Uh, certainly, you know, that, uh, that goes along with the American line with no boots on the ground, though it's no secret. And uh, Washington, in fact, is... Uh, perhaps been taking it as a bit of a joke. I mean, there's no point in arguing the boots on the ground rhetoric. I, I, it's, it's absolutely no point. In it. I'm not disputing the fact that we have troops on the ground and they're wearing boots. So there you go. Somebody in Syria is wearing boots. So has Turkey reacted? What have they got to say about it? Uh, it's um, no surprise. Turkey is... Uh, Hacked off, really. Uh, You have the Turkish foreign minister now saying that, uh, well, take a listen for yourself. Okay, we will. Thank you. Nice. It is not acceptable for U.S. soldiers to wear YPG terrorist arm badges. This is double standards, two-faced. The YPG has made more progress against the Islamic State than anyone else. Yet uh, Turks consider these guys as well as uh, all Kurdish military units, apart from uh, Iraqi ones, to be terrorists, blanket. And you now have the United States, a Turkish NATO ally, their special forces wearing YPG uh, insignia. So, you know, Turkey's uh, understandably very upset about this one. Artis Murad Gazdiev, thank you for that update. What a strange story. So train and assist in an advisory role is what we were told that they're over there to do. And then we get pictures back. And they're on the front line. The other couple of things that strike me about this story is uh, the special forces made no effort not to get photographed. They seem to not care they're being photographed. I have some of the photos linked in the show notes if you'd like to see them. Uh, and it's, it's striking to me. Uh, is it because they're so arrogant? They're not worried about being caught? Is it because they don't know that what they're doing is not being reported on at home? Why are these the first pictures? They came from the AFP. Why are these the first pictures of this we're seeing? And now we're getting a whole bunch of them coming in. There's more coming in about U.S. forces on front lines, moving with the herd of fighters. And, of course, the Department of Defense spokeshole says, well, look, this is how these troops have to fit in. This is part of clever warfare. They claim this is them camouflaging and protecting themselves. First of all, you know our policy here with regard to our special operations forces, um, that we're not going to talk very much about their activities. Uh, where they are and what they're doing for obvious reasons. Uh, They're carrying out a mission. Uh, They uh, are exposing themselves to significant uh, risk. And uh, I'm not going to do anything up here that uh, uh, in any way gives anyone the ability to identify where our forces are operating and what they're up to at any moment in time. The perfect, perfect shield. I do. I appreciate that concern, but these are photos that are now... So he says, you know, I don't want to do anything, anything that's going to endanger our troops. A legitimate concern, but also a go-to excuse for not talking about these things, right? And this is the go-to. Uh, but the reporter says, well, look, this is public information. That concern, but this, these are photos that are now publicly available. And um, from, from the video that I've seen, it appeared that there wasn't any real reluctance to not be filmed, to not be photographed by the Special Operations Forces. Um, so here we have something now on the record in the public uh, domain, and it's clearly U.S. forces uh, I'm, with I'm, the YPG insignia. So my question is: Is it appropriate to have a YPG badge on your on your shoulder? I'm, I'm not going to comment about uh, specific photos. What I will say <laughs> um, is that uh, special operations forces, um, when they operate uh, in certain areas, do what they can 
to, uh, uh, if you will, blend in with the community, to enhance their own uh, uh, protection. If that was true, then wouldn't they go with YPG insignias and not YPJ if they're trying to blend in? Right? Wouldn't you want to follow like the the the? Their own, oh, well, hello. Uh, wouldn't you want to follow like the standard blending in practices of the uh, locals if you're trying to blend in? Uh, protection, their own security, uh, and it's uh, special operations forces in the past have worked. Um, with partners and uh, and in the past have uh, conducted themselves in such a way that they uh, that they might operate in a in an atmosphere in which they are uh, supportive of that local force and they're advised in the cis role uh, and they might be again for uh, mm-hmm. visual purposes <laughs> yeah. might be blending in with uh-huh. uh, the local community. So, I see. Kind of a solidarity thing with uh, with their partner. I'm, I'm not going to get into uh, describing it other than our forces need to take the steps that they need to take in order to carry out their mission and to protect themselves and take every available step they can take to try and, again, carry out their mission and be safe uh, in the process of doing so. So they're, so they're wearing somebody else's insignia to do that. Um, I'm not sure what to make of that. It seems, it seems crazy. Turkey is pissed. And, uh, of course, Turkey deserves to be a little pissed. I'm not really too worried about how Turkey feels. But it is remarkable. And how long have they been doing this? How long has this been standard practice? Of course, now they've been told, as we heard from the spokesperson, they've been told to stop. I don't know. I'd love to hear your thoughts. I wanted to shift gears. Last week, we played a brilliant, brilliant piece of propaganda that refactors the CIA's role in 9-11 to make sure their version of events is correct. And they they burned past administrations in ways I have never seen done by the CIA. Last 12 directors. In fact, playing some of those clips is what got us blocked on YouTube for last week's episode. Got us completely blocked worldwide. But CNN, they don't want to be left out in the fun. So they've got their buddy, their good friend, Mike Rogers, everybody. Oh, we love Mike Rogers. Uh, you know, he's in Hollywood now, and uh, he's got... Well, he has no soul. He has no soul. Check out this little bit of propaganda coming to CNN soon. Almost every nation in the world spies. Hosted by Mike Rogers. For decades, our country has been fighting a shadow war. China was stealing U.S. naval secrets. We need it. It gets our cowie. I would not stop looking for Saddam. Explore America's most covert missions. I lied to everyone. That have remained secret until now. It's not a game. Declassified. Premiere Sunday, June 19th at 10 on There CNN. you go. Woo, everybody, look out. It's going to be great. Yeah, so uh, talk about taking our, our obsessively secretive culture in Washington, D.C., uh, going in there, working in part of that, being part of that, Mike Rogers, being part of that, Mike Rogers, and then going to CNN and milking advertisers for money. Now you're making money off. It's disgusting. It's so disgusting. CNN claims to be a news network. It's so disgusting. All of it's so gross. So I'm going to watch for clips for it, so that way I can play for you guys the good bits. And I bet just playing that will probably get pulled down on YouTube. They're getting, they're getting aggressive. They are getting aggressive. Uh, you know, why don't we take a moment in light of uh, what a bunch of train wrecks the mainstream media is and mention how this show functions. Patreon.com slash unfilter. You go there. You can join part of our unfilter army. We have 459 patrons. Those are folks who are funding this show. 
That's how this show stays on the air. It is an unbelievable amount of work to do this show. It is colossal. It has been even more so in 2016. Now, we only picked up one spo- uh, one patron, like, sponsors, essentially, since last Unfiltered. And, that's, and now we are recording early, so that's kind of understandable, but it's also very discouraging. A lot of hours went into last week's episode. And then this week, we're starting on a Monday. Again, so much work goes in to make this show possible on a Monday. Now, why am I doing this show on Monday this week? I actually intended to record on Wednesday, but something came up for the 10th anniversary of the Linux Action Show. I have super secret plans, and I have to shoot those super secret plans on Wednesday. And uh, it's going to take me far away from the studio, and I won't be able to make it back in time to prep and do the show on Wednesday. But it's kind of, you know, Linux Action Show's 10th anniversary is just around the corner, and it's a rare opportunity to get to do this. So I've got to go do it on Wednesday. So once we realized that's the way the schedule was lining up, producer Matt and I doubled down to make sure that we could do a show on Monday. And when we're really, really working hard, even though the, things are getting crazy, we want to still produce something for you guys because we want to make those 459 patrons happy. And the rest of you, too. We hope that you'll come over. We work very hard for those for that support, and we hope you find this show worth your time. We hope you found it inf- informative, and it made you even just think about something, even if you don't agree with us. We'd love it if you'd support us at patreon.com slash unfilter. Check out the reward levels, too. You start getting access to the show clips. You get behind-the-scenes information, and we have swag levels as well with additional cool bennies coming down the pipe. Patreon.com slash unfilter. It is a better way to fund a weekly news show. Trust me when I say that. There's just so many things. I, I, in the overtime, I'll have some more examples. But I want to move on to 2016. Now, you heard as we were wrapping up last week that uh, the uh, report came out, the IG report, they called from the State Department, talking about Hillary Clinton's email use. Now, we just had the basic report. Since then, everyone's had a little time to marinate on it. And... Uh, well, everybody's been taking shots at Hillary. Here's a clip of CNN going after Hillary over this whole email thing, using her own words against her. This is about as aggressive as CNN gets. Welcome back. A quick flashback. Hillary Clinton right here on CNN last July. Everything I did was permitted. There was no law. There was no regulation. There was nothing that did not give me the full authority to decide how I was going to communicate. Let's take a deep breath here. Everything I did was permitted by law and regulation. Well, um, not exactly. Uh, The State Department's Inspector General, in a highly critical report issued this past week, said Clinton never asked for permission to set up a private email server in her home. And had she asked, the report says, she would have been told no because of security concerns. The report also noted Clinton and her senior aides declined to cooperate with the Inspector General's review. Now, those aides have been interviewed as part of a separate FBI investigation into whether sensitive information was mishandled or compromised. Secretary Clinton says her interview hasn't been scheduled yet. Okay, so let's continue on from here. So there they're using her own words to kind of paint her into corner. Uh, and there have been some downplays from the State Department about missing memos and additional coverage. Hillary Clinton's confidants went on the record today about her email scandal. This comes in the shadow of a devastating Inspector General's report that has left the candidate clearly wounded. Chief Intelligence Correspondent Catherine Harridge is here with the latest on some documents that we're seeing this week for the first time. Good evening, Catherine. Well, thank you, Brad. Though Mrs. Clinton says she handed over everything, the Inspector General's report cited three emails that directly related to the server's setup and management, but they were not among the more than 55,000 pages released to the public. Today, the State Department spokesman said the omission is not a big deal. This is not a new uh, 
some new revelation that there are other emails uh, out there. And to the extent that there are additional emails, we're going to continue to uh, release those publicly. But the missing emails provide insight into why Clinton wanted the private server and what appears to be an effort to control her records. In 2011, aid Huma Abedin suggested Clinton get a State Department email account, but a government account is searchable under the Freedom of Information Act. Clinton apparently wanted to avoid that scenario and told Abedin in an email that she was concerned her personal communications would be accessible. She actually specifically said she was worried about freedom of information requests, too, I believe. Two other emails dealt with a suspected hacking attack in 2011. Today, her former State Department Chief of Staff, Cheryl Mills, gave a deposition about their email practices and how they decided which email should be turned over. A federal judge took the unusual step of allowing these interviews as part of a Freedom of Information Act lawsuit by Judicial Watch after it appeared the court was misled. What? A newly released transcript from an earlier deposition shows that a longtime State Department official, Louis Lukens, thought Clinton was using personal email to stay in touch with friends and family. Now, this is important because he was involved with some of the server setup, so the guy that kind of knew about it at the State Department was under the complete misunderstanding of how she was using it. Lukens also said he saw Clinton checking her BlackBerry in the hallway on the State Department's executive floor. Uh -oh. Just using a BlackBerry for government business was against the rules, and Mrs. Clinton was warned there were security issues with it, and she acknowledged those warnings. And secondly, using a BlackBerry in or near a secure uh, facility like the executive suite of the Secretary of State uh, could compromise uh, secret information. Asked about Lucan's testimony, spokesman Mark Toner said the use of PDAs is not permitted on the executive floor and no waiver was granted for Clinton's office. Fox asked the State Department for further clarification, but the answer did not, in fact, it did contradict what we heard at the briefing, Brett. Hmm. Okay, Catherine, we'll follow it. Thanks, Thanks Catherine. And then moving right along, uh, another uh, coverage from uh, CBS's angle. Hillary Clinton is on the defensive after fallout from a critical State Department report on her private email server. Editorials argue the continuing scandal will make it harder for Clinton to win the White House. Her primary opponent, Bernie Sanders, is now pushing to debate Donald Trump after Clinton said no to Sanders. Juliana Goldman looks at Clinton's response to the newest email criticism. Juliana, good morning. Good morning. Hillary Clinton has said she's willing to cooperate with ongoing investigations, but she did not with the State Department Inspector General's audit. And while she says neither that nor the pending FBI investigation will affect her campaign, oh. Clinton acknowledged, as she has before, that the email server was a mistake. My email use was widely known in the department throughout the government. Hillary Clinton played defense Thursday following the State Department Inspector General's report. Which now, there's actually quite a bit of uh, documentation that shows that people didn't know. Uh, she was having problems getting in through the spam filters. They didn't know that that was her that was actually emailing them. She concluded diplomatic security officials did not and would not approve her exclusive reliance on a personal email account. Everything I did was permitted. Clinton previously sounded confident the State Department was on board. Yesterday, she wasn't so clear. Well, I thought it was allowed. Oh. I knew past secretaries of state uh, use personal email. This was all bad judgment. The Republicans' presumptive nominee, Donald Trump, seized on the report, citing it as proof Clinton isn't honest or transparent. It's devastating, the report. It's devastating. You look back at her history, and this is her history. Actually, the report also doesn't say that there was a precedent set by past secretaries of state. It talks about Colin Powell, I believe, but his personal email wasn't necessarily used for work correspondence. It was a personal email account. 
Trump also tried to capitalize on the ongoing race between Clinton and Bernie Sanders. Oh, I'd love to debate Bernie. He's a dream. If we can raise uh, 10 or 15 million dollars for charity, which would be a very appropriate amount. So you probably heard about this, right? You heard about Trump saying he'd debate Bernie. Why don't we uh, switch over to that? Uh, here's the original uh, genesis of that whole thing. You probably have heard this as well, but not all places are playing the full origin of this. This is Trump on the Jimmy Kimmel show. Uh, and Kimmel says himself he was talking to Bernie Sanders and he wants to know, Bernie wants to know if you'd debate him. So this is where the question originally got popped. In his glove, Bernie he's still Sanders, on the ground. I think it's very unfair what's happening to Bernie Sanders, actually. And, uh, and it's a system that... It's not a good system. I asked Bernie Sanders because he's going to be here tomorrow to to ask a question. Have you met Bernie? Have you guys ever met before? I've never really had the privilege. I see. Okay, so here's the question from Bernie. He asked Hillary Clinton backed out of an Hillary Clinton backed out of an agreement to debate me in California before the June 7th primary. Are you prepared to debate the major issues facing our largest state and the country before the California primary? So this is a message from Bernie. Yes, I am. How much is he going to pay me? You would do it for a price? What would yeah, the because price if be? I debated him, we would have such high ratings, and I think I should give, take that money and give it to some worthy charity, okay? So if it was done for charity, you would agree to do that. Yeah, it's a nice cover. I, at first, I think he just wanted to get paid. I, then he thought, oh, yeah, I should probably mention uh, it should be for charity. So Trump was on, Trump was off, and then he releases a statement. Well, this is a Fox News alert. Breaking news tonight on the presidential race. Oh. There's a lot of exciting news brewing about the possibility of an upcoming debate between Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders. Both said they'd love to square off, but a short while ago, Trump put out a statement explaining why the debate will not happen. He oh. said, quote, it seems inappropriate that I would debate a second place finisher. Of course he did. <laughs> of course. He's like, wait a second. You're not the winner. I'm the winner. I'm the nominee. Yeah, of course he's not going to do it. Of course, because it only would serve Bernie well. Likely Bernie would win, and some, in, at least in some circles, it would only serve to help Bernie. And then, if it would somehow, if it somehow gave him like a Trump boost, if he gave Bernie Sanders a Trump boost and comes in California and things just go Bernie's way, then would Trump has got to fight Sanders and. Yeah, he knew. He could see the writing on the wall. He could see the writing on the wall. He's now, since the Republican nomination, he can just sit back and wait for the dog. Today, Donald Trump firing back at the man he's campaigning to replace. Number one, he's incompetent. Trump, speaking just hours after the sitting president overseas in Japan, said this about how foreign leaders perceive the New York billionaire. I think it's fair to say that they are surprised by the Republican nominee. Uh... They are not sure how seriously to take uh, some of his pronouncements. I can't really. This seems this seems unprecedented. A, a sitting U.S. president essentially campaigning against the running. I don't know running Republican. I just I don't recall this. You know, going back just a step, like Rikai says in the chat room. Uh, I wanted to mention a couple of things. If you're watching Trump and you don't think he's brilliant, you're not watching him closely. He did something really smooth here. He did two things really smooth. Give the money to charity. He'd say he did that without missing a beat, so it didn't have to be like asked for him. He, did, he, he transitioned to that super smooth. And then the other thing he did is he said for women. So he's handling recent charity bumbles. And first thing he says, let's do it for women. 
Well, here, what has he gotten pum- pummeled over? What has he been pummeled over? And then what does he happen to mention? Charity for women's health? You think that's accidental? That's him being smooth. And, and I sit here and I look at Obama and I think this is fairly obvious what he's doing. But they're rattled by Trump taking the critique in stride and saying it's actually beneficial in the wake of the current administration's actions. If they're rattled in a friendly way, that's a good thing. He's a president who's done a horrible job. Everybody understands that. He's a president who's allowed many of these countries to totally take advantage of him. Trump back on the trail in North Dakota after bypassing the magic number of 1,237 delegates needed to clinch the nomination. folks behind me got us right over the top pivoting quickly to his likely next opponent hillary clinton so there you go there you go so there's official now the numbers are in but don't let that distract you because there's someone else that wants your vote if i don't is governor johnson here Everyone, please stand and give a round of applause for the nominee for President of the United States, Governor Gary Johnson. Thank you very much. You have no idea how much what just happened means to me. Thank you. So is, I really, is, I'm wondering, is Gary going to get any coverage? Is there ever going to be any hope for a President Johnson? Uh, but to my surprise, he's actually gotten some coverage, even on Fox. 14 minutes before the top of the hour, the Libertarian Party nominating former New Mexico Governor Gary Johnson as its presidential candidate for the second time. In 2012, Johnson barely got 1% of the popular vote, but a recent poll shows 10% of voters now prefer him as their pick for president. So could he actually be a deciding factor? Now watch, they're going to introduce Gary here and ask him a few questions. And I kind of like the way Gary does this. He seems to sort of not take them very seriously. Uh, But they spin him in a way that you're going to hear others take advantage of. They spin him in a way immediately to give him sort of a, 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 to give the viewer a certain perspective on Gary Johnson. 2016, let's ask him, Libertarian Party presidential nominee Gary Johnson. Good morning. Good morning, sir. Good morning. Thanks for having me on this morning. So, Governor Johnson, I live down in Washington. Uh, There are a lot of reporters and people who talk about the race all the time. You're known, uh, the most famous position that you have is that you want to legalize pot. Do you think that that's why you got 10% this time? Now, don't don't be fooled. That's not his. I mean, the only reason that's his most known position is because that's the position they always talk about when they talk about Gary Johnson. That's why. Why don't you talk about his position on the Federal Reserve? That seems rather interesting. Why don't you talk about his positions on tax or states' rights? That seems rather interesting and would be probably much more of a bigger deal than his position on pot, which most of the society kind of comes in agreement on. They just meh about the whole damn thing when you poll them. So why that? Why? So that way everything he says is spun with, oh, that's the pothead. That's the pothead answering. Oh, he's probably still right now look at him he's a stoner that pothead pot do you think that that's why you got 10 percent this time oh no way uh look um 
I'm fiscally conservative. I'm the small government guy. Uh, if you want small government, I've really got a proven record. And uh, Bill Weld was also nominated this weekend as my vice presidential candidate. So we are two governors that have served in uh, heavily blue states. You see how it becomes political suicide to say you're for legalization? Even though it would make the most sense for society and how the, the war on drugs has been a colossal failure and our jails are overrun with people that don't deserve to be in there and it's literally destroying families. But because of the way the media now paints you, it becomes political suicide to say you're pro-legalization, even though it's the humanitarian position to take. Uh, as Republicans, so we're small government guys, uh, but we're also socially liberal. There's a... Uh, and I think that's I think that's the makeup of most people in this country. Um, and I think the Libertarian Party actually represents most people in this country, but they just don't know that they're libertarian. <laughs> this is going to be a race to watch. Now, I, I wanted to show you a few spotlights from the Libertarian from the Libertarian Party debate. Uh, it's it's good. There's a good few good highlights. And of course, there's a few famous names that, well, maybe aren't helping the overall Libertarian Party's image. Mr. McAfee. This government survived, and this nation survived for 150 years with no income taxes. How is that possible? He's kind of shaking and twitching as he talks. He's, uh, his whole body is moving, and he can't stay still. We had a government that was doing reasonable things at small cost. No taxation that involves the sweat of your brow can possibly be legal. And taxation was illegal until 1916. We can fund this government voluntarily. We have national parks. If you want to go to the park, pay some money. If you want to drive on a road, pay a dollar for every thousand miles you drive. We can do this. But to do this, we have to stop the insanity of a government out of control and growing like a weed. And we can do that. Mr. Perry. With all due respect, your question is invalid because it <laughs> presumes there are essential duties of government. Now, here comes this guy. Now, uh, Daryl Perry, um, you know, you're going to have to listen just here for a moment. But you remember what I say? So, you first you start with McAfee. He's sitting there up there shaking like a leaf. And then you got this guy. Gary Johnson It's kind of the best choice to, if you didn't want the Libertarian Party to look very extreme. Now, agree or disagree with him, what he's about to say uh, and the way he looks... You would say he's extreme. I just I think most people in the U.S. politics would say these are extreme, loony, fringe positions, and they're not helping their cause necessarily. At the same time, I like some of the things they say. If in fact, let's let's get let's let this guy. I won't do much of this, but let's let this guy. It was such a good lead-up. With all due respect, your question is invalid because oh. it presumes there are essential duties of government. If you want NASA to exist and send things into space, write a check to That'll NASA. Work. If you want the U.S. military to drone bomb children in the Middle East, write a check to the U.S. military. But don't force me to pay for it. Mr. Peterson, what government cabinet positions would you eliminate? Well, I'm from Missouri, and we love our guns and our whiskey, which is why I think that the ATF, the alcohol, tobacco, and firearms industry, ought to be a... Oh, wait for it. Before he says it, wait for it. Hold on. What's he going to say? What's he going to say? The, the alcohol, tobacco, and firearms ought to be completely abolished, right? That's what he's going to say. Abolished. 
Mr. Peterson, what government cabinet positions would you eliminate? Now just wait for it. Well, this I'm is from great. Missouri, and we love our guns yeah. and our whiskey, oh, which yeah. is why I think that the ATF, the alcohol, tobacco, and firearms industry, ought to be a store, not what? a government agency. What? <laughs> the president of the United States does actually have the authority to effectively end one institution of the federal government, and that's the DEA, and here's how. We can end the federal war on drugs by instructing the chief of the DEA to set the federal drug schedule of all drugs to zero. This would effectively, this would effectively kick the war on drugs back to the states. And uh, we could end the DEA that way. Yeah, sure. Mr. McAfee, would you have voted in favor of the 1964 Civil Rights Act had you been in the Senate? As many of you know, my wife is black. And having spent three and a half years living 24 hours a day with her, I can assure you that legislation in no way ended discrimination. So the uh, clip is in the supporter sync if you'd like to watch the entire thing. But it's a, it was an interesting show, I thought. I thought it was rather interesting. Uh, now, Gary Johnson also made some headlines. Maybe he's taking a playbook out of Trump's card uh, by, well, uh, this would be a good moment to perhaps... Jump ahead a few seconds if uh, you're listening somewhere where language is not safe, because Gary Johnson was trying to get your attention. It was kind of a misfire on my part when I called him a pussy. Donald Trump's a pussy. But the point was, was that, you know what, I've climbed the highest mountain on each of the seven continents. I'm going to do a 3,000 mile mountain bike ride here, uh, upcoming. Um, Trump's a pussy. I think that Donald Trump alienates more than half of Republicans. Deporting 11 million illegal immigrants, uh, building a fence across the border, uh, killing the families of Islamic terrorists. Free market, but I'm going to force Apple to make their iPads and their iPhones in the United States. If it gets down to being in the presidential debates and uh, he's got anything to say about me, which I'm sure he will, um, I'll just start off the fact that he's a pussy. <laughs> I don't, I don't know what to make of that. I don't know what to make of that. Well, I just, I thought maybe that we'd let Gary Johnson take us out right there. This will end the main portion of the show. Overtime's still coming up, so don't go away. Uh, but that's your main headlines for the day. That's just, it's unbelievable. You can give us more stories over at unfilter.reddit.com. Uh, that's where you can supply us with your thoughts, your ideas, your links. Check out the show notes for additional links this week. Also, if you're an Unfiltered supporter and uh, you haven't gotten the BitTorrent sync yet, we're looking for a new system. So if you have a replacement, send it in on filter.reddit.com. At Chris Elias is where you follow me, jupiterbroadcasting.com slash calendar. We might be live for uh, the uh, Tuesday, June 7th event. See you then. OMG, OMG. Oh no. You smell that? Yep. Oh, that's definitely some overtime. We got more clips to cover. We got more to talk about. There's a lot more show left, so stay tuned for the Unfilter 190 Overtime Show. So because it's a Monday edition, we're a little light on new supporters. So a big thank you to Mr. Mike K, 
our one and only new patron this week. So, Mike, this segment goes out to you and all of our supporters over at patreon.com slash unfilter. I would love to see a couple more than that for next week's show. So if you could go over there, if you haven't supported us yet and been thinking about it, we would appreciate it because that makes us feel a lot better when we work real hard on this here show. So I got to move on to a topic I love. I love this topic. You guys know me. Whenever I get a chance to poke fun at the mainstream media in a way that is worth our time, I'm not just taking pot shots. In a way that's worth our time, I'm going to do it. And I got a clip for you. (laughs) I got a clip for you. I thought... I started the show with that story about the Guardian, right? The Guardian's reporter is making everything up. You think he's like one of the Linux bloggers? Out, some of these Linux bloggers out here. So, I tell you what, that it happens in all forms of media. It's not just the Guardian. But you guys have heard me say it. I've played the clips. You get the point. The media has gotten real bad. A lot of consolidation, all that stuff. But what if I could prove to you that the media has always been bad? See, we have this nostalgic back in Walter Cronkite's era when Cronkite when Cronkite before Brightwy like 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 there was some sort of point in time when the mainstream media was great and perfect by the way before I go in I want to mention I, 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 I was rushing on the way out we may or may not be live for the June 7th uh, California primary check the calendar for that I kind of want to do live coverage but I'm going to wait and see if Mr. Chase is available so we may be doing that live next week if you'd like to join us for that and call in and whatnot. Okay, so now back on track. Sorry, I just want to make that quick announcement. I want to take you back in time and show you from 1980 how bad the mainstream media always has been in such a great way. Today's teens seem to thrive on breakdancing, but Karen Marks tells us tonight on Health Desk, improper breaking could leave parts of your body broken. Karen, tell us about it. Now, I've never tried it myself. You may be surprised. No, no, of course not. Very surprised. Yeah, they're talking about breakdancing. Told it's not easy to spin around on your head, and health professionals say it may not be safe either. So even back in the day, back in the day, for breakdancing, they were running health scare reports about it. When when breakdancing was a new thing, they had, this may break you. Seeing some injuries from breaking. You see, your body isn't made to spin upside down like a top. The International Chiropractors Association and many medical doctors are warning you not to try it. The entire weight of the body and additional momentum is just too much for the supporting structures. Wilbeck says those spinning headstands can tear connective tissues and cause the bones in your back to become displaced. He says that can lead to long-term back pain and even arthritis in later years. Yes, it's not a parody. This is an important reason that young people should be especially aware of uh, the dangers of breakdancing. Are you seeing the formula here? They have the in-studio start. They toss to the reporter, although in this case it was in-studio. Then they go to the pre-made package that's pre-produced, like, that has the expert interviews. This is the same damn formula, guys. Because they may not be aware of what's happening until it's way too late, and 15 years later, they wonder why they can't turn their neck. These teenage break-in enthusiasts admit breakdancing can be dangerous if you don't know what you're doing. They say before trying a new and difficult move, you should ask someone to show you how to do it. But the members of the Fearless Five, as they call their group, aren't shaken by the medical experts' warnings. Why do you keep doing it? Because it's fun. 
and the girls like it. Oh, my God. If pleasing girls is enough to keep you going, the international chiropractors and some dance experts say at least take some precautions. If you're over 18 years old, you should make sure your bones and muscles are toned and limber. Some warm-up exercises for the back, neck, arms, and legs are also recommended. Protective clothing will help, too, to keep your arms and legs from being scraped. And not many break dancers would go for this one, but the chiropractors advise you to wear elbow and knee pads, gloves, <laughs> and supportive taping for joints. Oh, no. After all, avoiding injury now may mean you can keep pleasing the girls for years No, no. Good point, Karen. Yes, well, this may not please the girls, but if you've had any spinal, back, or neck injuries, you should not be break dancing at all. Okay, thank you very much, Karen. A little advice for the breakers. We need advice yeah. for the people who are suffering from heat stroke. Over. We need a break from the heat. Right. <laughs> Oh my god. It was worse than I remembered. <laughs> this is why you gotta support your unfiltered show. And in fact, this is CNN Breaking News. Holy smokes! Coming into the unfiltered studios right now. A big thank you out to Nicholas, who just signed up over at Patreon during the live show to support us. Hey! <laughs> Nicholas, thank you, thank you. Um, will you allow me one more? Will you allow me one more? You see, it's important to let Chris do this from time to time because I have to watch so much mainstream media for you guys. So just let me do this. And plus, I think it's educational for you too. And it actually feels really good after having done the Linux Switch competition and being shut down while out on the street a few times. This is Carthot Carth. Well, I can't speak tonight. This is what happens when you have three shows. This is satisfying for me in a way that I can't really fully express to you. I found this at 6 a.m. this morning and I had to clip it for the show. If you're familiar with Clayton Morris, he's often on MacBreak Weekly or some of the Twitch shows. They're trying so hard to do a show about hot dogs. And Clayton wants to do some man on the street interviews, but the hot dog vendor won't frickin' talk to him and shuts him down and chaos ensues. This is mainstream media at its worst. Now, one of these things is not like the other. It sounds like a song, right? Well, the controversy over whether or not a hot dog <laughs> is classified as a sandwich reignited this Memorial Day weekend. Merriam-Webster getting grilled over this tweet saying, have a great Memorial Day weekend. The hot dog is a sandwich. They point to the definition of a sandwich, which is two or more slices of bread or a split roll having a filling in between. Well, many people are outraged, including one person who even calls this terrorism, according to a tweet. Oh, come on. You know, it sounds like an overstatement, but when you attack a hot dog, you're not just deriding a cylindrical meat product. You're attacking America. The now, we said in our correspondence, that's exactly right. Clay Morris is outside on Sixth Avenue with a with a hot dog vendor. We don't. Now you hear it, he's starting to get he's starting to get some instructions from the room, uh, and uh, he's starting to like not he's not Clayton uh, is starting to have some problems. You can tell, and we're not sure what's happening. Our correspondence. That's exactly right. Clay Morris is outside on Sixth Avenue with a with a hot dog vendor. We don't have him now. We've got some technical problems. But we're never going to go to Clayton. He is with a weenie man right now. There, there he is. <laughs> that's right. Well, we're, we're out here trying to check the pulse uh, of the hot dog of uh, the hot dog controversy across the country this morning with a hot dog vendor. Man, uh, thank you for supporting the show at Patreon.com/unfilter. So if I ever wanted to be on air, I didn't have to do stupid things like this. Could you see me doing this? You know, drop a few pounds, shave the beard. This could be me. Excuse me, sir. You, you handle a lot of hot dogs, right? 
Go away, he says. No, no. There's a controversy this morning about whether or not a hot dog is a sandwich. Would you say it's a sandwich or would you say it's something entirely different? Really doesn't have an opinion about it. It's been a rough morning out here on New York City in Times Square. Let's see if we can... I don't know if you guys... In Times Square. It's about the MDS Did you tell him you were the ta- a tax authority, Clayton? I'm going to ask this guy. Uh, you know, we have a jaywalking problem. Yeah, it's, Clayton's just walking around the road it's at this point. It's an iconic thing to do, though, when you do Big Apple. And we should be clear, in New York City, it's an all-cash business. At least if I die. So there's some skin. train wreck this is. This is a train wreck. my career. see if I can ask this gentleman. The hardest interview of my career, he says. This guy just had some Dunkin' Donuts, and he's a fan of fast food. Let me ask this guy. So, I have a question about hot dogs. It's Memorial Day weekend. Webster's just tweeted out yesterday. Can you believe this? I mean, I'll just leave it at that. Isn't this, I mean, this is really. A hot dog is a sandwich. Where do you come down on this debate? Hot dog a sandwich? I'm going to say definitely not. <laughs> I can't believe this is what they're good. This is what, this is what they're. Okay. It goes on for another four minutes, so I'll just leave it at that. I'll leave it at that. And then there's one more story you probably saw because I just can't resist this story. And it is a bit of a head-scratcher. Finally tonight, it could be your new home, or make that homes, plural, an entire town up for auction with a starting bid of $1 million. All right, here's what we got to do, guys. We got to get together. We got to get together as a group. And we're going to buy this town, and we're going to make it the Jupiter Broadcasting Paradise. It'll be a production town. The whole town will be used for production. We'll set up a mecca of like-minded individuals, and we'll inhabit this town. And this is where we will exist. We will follow our own laws, our own rules, and I will never wear pants. What could go wrong? A secluded locale that already has just about everything you'd find in most towns, except, of course, neighbors. NBC's Kevin Tibbles takes us there. What? Hey, buddy, can you spare a million? Uncle Sam's got a deal for you. Two fuel tanks, a diesel tank. That's right. The former U.S. naval base in postcard-pretty Sugar Grove, West Virginia, will be sold to the highest bidder, who's willing to lay down a deposit of 100000 up front. We like to think that separates the men from the boys. <laughs> it shows that you're a serious buyer. So what do you get? 122 acres with 80 homes, a preschool, a fire station, a baseball diamond, even a gymnasium. You could start your own town. You could. You could call it Kevin Town. <laughs> you can. <laughs> but wait, on, there's more. There's even a bowling alley. Prospective buyer Chad Bennett is eyeing the place for his cybersecurity firm. Probably the first thing that we did is is find the bowlers that also do (laughs) cybersecurity. It's so remote, your cell phone won't even work. Been good neighbors. John Bauer's family has run the general store since 1929. He hopes whoever buys it will create some jobs. Well, I'll throw a few bucks your way if you want to go down here. I'm in. Let's take up a collection. So, if you really want to be the master of your own domain, everything that will make this fully functional, just get your bid in now. Kevin Tibbles, NBC News. All right, what do you guys think, huh? Think about it. Now, that guy wants to do a cybersecurity thing there. That sounds stupid. Yeah, I like the 100K up front shows you're a man. Is it not sexist when a woman says it? Are we are we allowed to say that? When? What if a man had said that? Would it then be sexist? I don't understand. And then the number one story today and yesterday. The Cincinnati Zoo is open this weekend, but its gorilla world is closed indefinitely. A four-year-old boy got into the gorilla enclosure on Saturday and was hurt. An endangered gorilla had to be killed. 
Jamie Yukas has the latest. Cell phone videos from people visiting the Cincinnati Zoo show a four-year-old boy in the Gorilla World moat. The boy somehow got through a barrier and fell at least 10 feet down into the shallow stream. That's when Harambe, a 17-year-old endangered western lowland gorilla, approaches the boy. At first, it looks like he's being protective, but then his behavior turns threatening. The gorilla has a child and is dragging him around the pen. The boy does not appear to scream or panic. Zoo officials removed two female gorillas from the enclosure, but did not approach Harembe for at least 10 minutes. Eventually, zoo president Thane Maynard says the 400-pound gorilla became violent. It seemed very much by our professional team, our dangerous animal response team, to be a life-threatening situation. And so the choice was made uh, to put down or shoot Harambe. The zoo says its team chose not to tranquilize the gorilla because the animal was agitated and it would have taken too long to sedate him. The zoo's in the business of taking care of endangered animals and we certainly don't want to be in a situation where they have to be killed. Animal activists have created online petitions and Facebook pages like Justice for Harambe. Many angry the endangered gorilla was put down. Others want the boy's mother to face child endangerment charges. Let's be honest though, the endangerment started when we decided to keep that animal in captivity. Super sad, though. Um, glad the kid's okay. Should we move on to a little more 2016 coverage, a little more actual news news? Uh, I, you know, this reminded me so much of Bill Clinton. Did you see this? Uh, did you see this uh, shot of Trump eating a Big Mac? And did you also think of uh, Bill Clinton? On Thursday, Trump clinched the GOP nomination, just as I predicted, and he celebrated with <laughs> a Big you. Mac meal, just as I predicted. Trump made the fast food stop in California, where he's campaigning ahead of the state's June 7th primary. Look at that. Look at his, look at the, the Trump uh, <laughs> private jet. Joanne, nothing feels as good as kind of mixing luxury with, uh, you know, like a oh, like McDonald's, yeah. right? You know, that's a classic politician move, right? To do the uh, right, right, right. But it is. It's a classic move. It's so obvious. Why we, well, yeah, that's right. Now, I want to play this clip, but it's kind of long. So I wanted to play it here in the overtime for you guys. I don't know what to make about MSNBC. I had several clips from them this week losing their crap over Hillary. They are freaking out. And it's fascinating to watch one of Hillary Clinton's largest supported net, uh, broadcast networks lose their crap. And The Morning Joe is sort of a reverent show amongst liberals. They, a lot of it's sort of the it's the morning show for a lot of them that are very news focused, and this piece ran on Morning Joe and it's it's scathing about Hillary. In fact, they say that her deceit is mind-boggling. This is on MSNBC. Rules have been clarified since I left about the practice. Having said that, I have said many times it was a mistake, and if I could go back, I would do it differently. You have said that you would talk to anyone, any time about your emails, yet you did not cooperate with State Department investigators, an agency that you ran. Why? Well, I have talked about this for um, many, many months. I testified for 11 hours before the committee, the Benghazi committee. Uh, I have answered numerous questions. We have posted information uh, on our website, and the information that we had is out there. It's been uh, clearly public. She's, there's a lot of things you could pick apart here in what she's saying. Um, 
almost all of it, really. But the thing, one thing that I think we really haven't touched on a lot is her claim that I testified for 12 hours at the Benghazi committee. Yeah, you did. You did, and I was damn impressed by that. That's a separate issue. That's not. They talked about your emails there, but that wasn't the core focus of that hearing. She throws it in there as if it's all part of how how much of a a, a, a team player she's been on this email investigation. When in reality, it's it's completely arbitrary. It's got nothing to do with the whole thing. And. My email use was widely known in the department, throughout the government. And the actual report disputes that. Uh, and I have um, provided uh, all of my work-related emails, and I've asked that they be made public. And I think that, uh, uh, you know, that demonstrates that I wanted to make sure that this information uh, was part of the uh, uh, official records. That was mind-boggling. The number of false statements contained within that. Amazing. I mean, I, I, I don't want to be, like, negative. I really don't. But that was just mind Does she not have anybody around her that can tell her, Jim Van Dye? You know, we got to really stop lying about this. Because everything she said in there was just a lie. I mean, it was it was allowed by the State Department. No, it was not allowed by the that State the Department. That was the whole of the news this week. Uh, everybody knew in the State Department that we were doing it. No, they said we didn't know. But if we did know, we wouldn't allow her to do it. And she can, she goes on and on. And you know, she sent out directives in 2011 saying, "Don't do it the way I'm doing it." Basically, in 2009, there was a federal regulation as far as record keeping goes, passed across the entire government. I mean, Jim, I don't understand it. Just doesn't it doesn't help her honest and trustworthy i mean she's she's just not telling the truth and her own state department said you're not telling the truth it would be better for her politically <laughs> to say i screwed up and i'm really sorry well she does kind of say that doesn't she but uh yeah i i think it's kind of also sort of astonishing this is on msnbc why can't they do it and end it there you're, you're teasing this focus group that you're doing i bet right. you i can guarantee you what they're going to say in that focus group which is that's why they don't like Hillary Clinton. It's and it's not just that, that some of but the stuff is, no is blatantly But is there no one around her that can tell her? No, uh, Madam Secretary, you, know you gotta work. start telling the truth. End up in this little bubble where they all have that bunker mentality. There's four or five people who can really speak in to her life. It's always been the truth about her. There's not a big group of people, and they love her, and they think she's always right. And no, no, clearly no one's just saying to do what you're yeah. saying she should do. To tell the truth. That is the co-founder of Politico, too, which is uh, I think kind of noteworthy. So there you go. I just want to cover those 2016 things. While we're talking about the Clintons, super fascinating clip that is shedding some light on the Clinton Foundation, which I think is not getting nearly enough scrutiny. Now, everybody thinks that probably. I'm not saying anything you probably haven't thought of yourself. But you might not know why. You might just have a gut suspicion. Well, let's start with this little fact that gets dropped right away in the clip. The Clinton Foundation, which now is a global initiative that works around the world, was involved in 9-11 disaster relief, Haiti disaster relief, uh, has sold AIDS medication around the world. The Clinton Foundation, which is a charity, a tax-free charity, was established as a library. It was opened up as, it was just supposed to be a library. And then it just expanded from there, using loopholes and little tricks. That's just one of the many nuggets that comes out of this audio interview that I want to play for you guys. The Clinton Foundation is going to be a huge target once it's just Hill versus Trump. All public charities, and that's what the Clintons started out as being, 
It started out being simply a library and archive based in Little Rock, and that was its sole tax-exempt purpose. All public charities whose revenues exceed a certain number, it depends state by state, have to provide each year an independent certified set of financial statements that is called a professional audit. The Clinton Foundation, since inception on October 23, 1997, has tendered into the public domain documents that purport to be audits, but they're not audits. They're not compliant with the actual tough regulations that exist in places like your state, California, my state, New York, and around the world. And when you start pulling beneath the surface and looking at the actual financial statements and cross-checking them, these financial statements can readily be cross-checked. There shouldn't be discrepancies. They can be cross-checked mm. for the foundation alone, uh-huh. and they can be cross-checked for their disclosures against the disclosures of charities that say they gave amounts to the Clinton Foundation. For the last 15 months, I've been doing that type of painstaking work, oh. and the discrepancies and the numbers that we see run in the many hundreds of millions of dollars. Okay, well, let me ask you. Let me ask you this first before we even get into the uh, nitty gritty of the independent audits and what laws they might be breaking. There, uh, how do you know? You say you've been analyzing this for fifteen months. Man, uh, what kind of access to records do you have, and what records are you looking at to determine this? All right, well, that's a good good question. So, the starting place for the Clinton Foundation for the people who don't know better is to look at their own website, and there they put up information, uh, financial reports that go back to nineteen ninety eight but audits that start in 2004. So in the beginning, there's a bunch of missing information. The versions that they put up on their website are very different, materially different from the versions that you can find by looking in the states where they have operated inside the United States and outside the United States in online databases that are freely accessible. The second thing you can cross-check are press releases issued by the Clinton Foundation and others at the time that these major donations and grants are made. So he's looking at public public records, the foundations on records on their websites, and records from companies that they worked with, the states they worked with, and press releases. He's cross-checking all of them and saying the numbers don't add up at all. The third thing you can check, which I've checked, are uh, after-action audit reports. The big uh, governments that give money away have had troubles. So, for example, the government of Norway the government of Australia, the government of Canada, the government of Ireland, the government of the UK. Oh. Each of these organizations and multilateral organizations will do special reports on a country, the progress in a country, and they contain extensive reports that don't foot. But the biggest place to start is with the largest donor, and the largest donor to the Clinton Foundation is a name very few people know. It's called Unitaid. Out of the two billion in, in declared contributions, which may or may not, and most likely are not the total two amount billion. of money sent towards the Clinton Foundation, of that two billion, six hundred million came from one organization based in Switzerland. Wow. All right, so this wow. lack of independent audits then wow. that the Clinton Foundation uh almost fudged to make it look like they did conduct. If they didn't conduct them, as you found, what laws does this violate? Does that violate local law, state law, federal law, charity law? What does that violate? All right. What it, what the, the principal law that it violates is charity fraud solicitation law. Mm. This is a charity that, while we're on this broadcast, is raising money over the Internet. It may be using the phones to do it. It may be using the mails. And uh, it's doing this broadly to the public. So when you engage in that type of behavior, your forms, all your filings have to be true and accurate. There's special laws that apply to charities. Charities may not engage in, quote, any 
illegal activity. So all these forms have to be accurate. They are not accurate. They are raising money. And worse, they are engaged in disaster relief. After the various disasters, 9-11, Katrina, and the frauds that happen, Americans and others are very generous people. We see a disaster. Money flows towards a charity. After disasters were exposed starting in 2001, the federal government tightened the sentencing guidelines, the FBI did, for uh, disaster relief charity, charity fraud. And these people are engaged in disaster relief charity fraud. So the penalties for that, and mind you, it's not like Peter Schweitzer's book. You don't have to prove quid pro quo. All you have to show is they are soliciting, which they admit, and that their forms and filings are materially false and misleading, which I believe they are. In other words, that might just be all it takes for them to be a, a bogus operation, which is a pretty thin line for some, somebody like the Clintons to walk. Isn't that something? I found that to be absolutely fascinating. The foundation has got to be her weakest spot and a great spot to expose corruption. Because you know that's what that's about. I got one more audio-only Clinton thing for you. This is a former friend of Bill Clinton. About seven years older, I think she was. And uh, she recounts a story about doing coke with Bill. Now, there is a lot of reports that Bill's been into coke. But we've never really heard a, a situation described in quite this much detail. I'll leave it up to you to determine if it's legit or not. I was the older woman, you know, I'm seven years older than Bill, and I think that that's the reason that he confided in me, because, you see, his mother was the central part of his world, his life, and he didn't ever really have a strong father figure. And I think he felt like he could talk to me like he would talk to his mother. We laughed a lot, and we had fun. Of course, he he didn't need it, but I think maybe it had become a habit that he smoked marijuana and that he uh, did coke. Actually, I just realized this is a table. It's funny, just sitting here, uh, all my furniture I've collected through the years, but this is uh, the couch he sat on, that's the table. When he did coke, he brought a little... Like a woman's cosmetic case. That's the only thing I can describe. So he brought it with him everywhere he goes, it sounds like. He had a nice case, and he had himself a bit of a coke ritual. And he put it down here, pushed everything aside. Of course, he was a little bit bigger than me. And he rolled it out, and there was this little mat, and he sprinkled this white powder. I was sitting across the way. I was just fascinated because it had a little straw, and he leaned over and... You know, in each nostril, took a few big snorts and it felt better, I guess, because he had a big smile on his face. And I asked him if he did coke because it uh, was almost like a stimulant. He said it just made him feel better, gave him more power, made him feel courageous. And uh, I didn't question it because everybody has different ways of getting high. I go running and I got a high. But uh, if you ever saw pictures of Bill, he didn't run much. But he did do coke. <laughs> he did do coke. <laughs> coke. Uh, I'll tell you what, that sounds legit to me. Just my opinion. I don't know what to do with that. But the way she described him having a carrying case and a little ritual of setting it up, and making him sound, what did she say, more courageous? That, I've never done 
anything like Coke, but I can tell you that sounds legitimate to me. I that's that that feels real. Uh, and who knows? You know what? It was the '80s, right? Okay, I've got just a couple more stories to play for you. You all heard this story, I'm sure. But President has requested a cool $89 billion for IT costs next year. Much of it reportedly slated for maintenance of very outdated legacy systems. According to the report, the Pentagon system used to coordinate operations for ballistic missiles and other nuclear forces, that system uses eight-inch floppy disks. What? That's right, eight-inch floppy disks. And that's one of the newer systems in this report. The Department of Veterans Affairs apparently tracks benefits claims and payroll on IBM mainframes <gasps> that use code from the 1950s. No, yeah, right. Many of these agencies do have plans to upgrade, so maybe we'll have Nintendo Game Boys controlling our nukes by the next presidential election. <laughs> you know, as someone who's worked around IBM mainframes and systems like that, let me tell you something, son. It's going to cost way more money and cause way more problems, and you're going to lose features when you move over to new system. The U.S. military is in a unique position to maintain contracts to have those companies like IBM continue to maintain and service those systems. And yes, it's expensive. It's going to be cheaper than replacing those systems. And you know what else? That also means they're likely not connected to the internet. They may not even support TCP IP, for God's sakes. Good on him, I say. I mean, I, I'm not I'm not one for staying behind the times, but at the same time, you know, the next system is probably going to be remotely controlled by some vendor in Israel or something. It's just... Leave it where it's at. Leave it where it's at. And now, for another hard-hitting news story. This, you know, this is what happens when it's Memorial Day weekend. This must be what this is. Although this was before Memorial Day weekend. Let's go to Armira Baines, and is in, Canada. in Vancouver with details on this one. So a crow making its way into a police investigation? Yeah, well, Michael, it's hard to keep a straight face. Uh, we are talking about a crow that's accused of flying away with a knife uh, from a crime scene. Now, this happened on Tuesday. Vancouver police were, were called to the scene of a burning car there. They say that they were confronted by a man who had a knife. And so police had shot the man in the leg, but he also dropped the knife. And then this crow, <coughs> also known as Canuck. Okay, wait, <clears throat> I'm sorry. The crow has a name? The crow is, the crow has a name? That's, so the police are referring to the crow by name? I mean, the only thing that could be more embarrassing is if they were running around like clowns chasing it. He also dropped the knife and then this crow, also known as Canuck, came and he picked up the knife and he flew off. Now, witnesses say that officers chased the crow oh, for no. about 15 to 20 feet no. until the crow eventually dropped the knife and police got a hold of it. Vancouver police have confirmed this. They do say this crow was quite persistent, but they did manage to get a hold of the evidence. Um, the crow also persisted uh, and hung around the crime scene for a while. He was seen uh, uh, hanging out on the burn car as well as trying to get into uh, the camera gear uh, of some of the media that were at the scene. <laughs> I don't, I don't, I don't, I, I just don't, I don't, I can't. Girl, I can't. Now one of my favorite clips of the day. This is, uh, <clears throat> this is, this was, this is just so great. 
the media has a high opinion of themselves, really. And uh, Chris Hayes is at the top of that list. And they do these typical shots, walking out in between the crowds, big cutting between the people. We're just starting to see a lot of men on the street uh, as planned. They wanted to be peaceful. They wanted to come out. Trying to get a sense, so you go through the most crowded territory and you stream it live. Be organized, have their side. Just hope somebody doesn't have their pants down. Which they made days ahead of time. Of course, have the usual chants that we hear, their usual songs. Uh, and so far, it has been peaceful. Sign behind him says F Trump, only it's uh, <laughs> it's not, it doesn't say F Trump. It's spelled out right there. I don't know if the, I don't know if the journalist doesn't see it. Uh, I mean, he's just asking for it. These are Trump protesters that are fired up, getting paid by George Soros. They're going to be fired up and they want attention. There hasn't been any physical back and forth. We've seen a lot of yelling. We've seen a lot of chanting. We've seen a lot of, uh, we've seen some pushing between the pro- protesters and others. Fuck her right in the pussy. Oh, man. <laughs> and then we have that. Oh, you know, this is what you get. What are you thinking? You are supposed to be a professional. You're walking around this crowd that's all fired up. And then we have that. Sorry about that, Chris. Yeah, I don't. Uh, yeah, Chris is like, yeah, no, let's not bring attention to that. Protesters and others. Fuck her right in the pussy. No, no, no. no, no, no. Stop. Stop. And then we have that. Sorry about that, Chris. Yeah, I don't. Uh, we have, like, for example, we have, they bring a lot of props. We're seeing more and more of this. We have a, a Donald Trump pinata, which they sell now around San Diego and elsewhere. Uh, we're still waiting on one organized group that we're told is going to march over here from that away. And when that group shows up, we may well have more than 2,000 protesters total. Again, Chris, bottom line is that so far they're doing what they bottom plan line. to do, which is to march, which is to chant, and no violence, physical, at least so far. Now, remember, in the mind of the media, they are the people that are on the front lines to bring you this important breaking story that all of these people are so upset about Donald Trump. It, they are there as a tool for the American democracy, a necessary part of this election process, and therefore it is their privilege, or it is their, it is your privilege for them to watch them, and it is it is your privilege for them to be covering this for you, and it is their duty, and it is their right to be there. Not their right. Well, that's the plan, and let's hope it stays that way. Jacob Rascone, outside the venue where Donald Trump was set to speak at the top of the hour. Jacob, thanks. Hey, America, if you see someone who's doing a live shot and you think it's funny or smart or clever or disruptive in any way to say what that guy just said, it's not. Grow the hell up. Thank you. All right. I want to welcome today's panel. Katrina Bannon, who... He's a little upset, I think. What's the matter, Chris? Did somebody say the F word and the P word on your show? Oh. All right, that. Right there. I can't top that. I can't top that. That's the, that's the end of the show. That brings us to the end of the Unfilter Overtime. We'll be back to the regular scheduled time next week, I think, unless we decide to do the June 7th live event for California. I think that would put us on Tuesday. Anyways, the calendar will have all of that. Thank you for being here. See you next time. And thanks for you out there, our supporters, for making this show possible at patreon.com slash unfilter. See you next time.